Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, the podcast where we cook up a delicious blend of cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection topics to serve you a hearty bowl of insights. Whether you like your gumbo spicy with a dash of encryption or prefer a milder flavor with a side of compliance, we've got you covered. So grab a spoon, sit back, and let's dive into the pot of data protection gumbo. Welcome to another edition of the Data Protection Gumbo podcast. We're here with another amazing guest, Andre Kirtland. He's a solutions architect at NetSurant, and he has been working professionally in the IT industry for almost 30 years. And during which time he has performed almost every imaginable IT job description. And as a solutions architect, his role is to design and implement solutions for enterprise customers. So, Andre, welcome to the gumbo. How are you? I'm awesome. Very glad to be here. Well, nice. Let's start off by you giving us an update on NetSurant. Okay. So, um, we're a solutions uh, provider headquartered in Johannesburg, South Africa, which is where I'm based. As an organization, we operate all over the world. I've done projects in every continent except Antarctica. And uh, we have an office in New York City as well. Nice. And so I brought you on so so we can have a conversation just around securely moving data to the cloud and and also a little bit about securely migrating data to public cloud like Microsoft Azure, etc. So I, I really would like to hear from you, I guess, what, what do you think is the number one thing as it comes to implementing cloud services securely right now? In terms of how to do it right, there's a lot, a long list of um, you know, good practices. I'll start by saying how to do it wrong. And what I see most often is um, the most common mistake is that people try to run their cloud exactly the same way that they ran their on-premises, which is usually fairly badly. That means that they don't make use of the uh, particular tools and benefits that they have in your cloud services. And uh, they also are not trying to alleviate the weaknesses and the the risks that they face sitting in the cloud. A lot of times um, you've got people trying to still run their security practices and ideas from decades ago. They were still very dependent on having secure networks, firewalls. And uh, when you're sitting in the cloud, you have to really take the approach of, um, uh, as they say, assume breach. Assume the bad guy potentially is already in that they're in your network. So things like zero trust start becoming really important. Okay, I was going to ask you, is, is zero trust more of a, a buzzword nowadays because everyone seems to be using it? It seems to be a, a really cool term in the security, cybersecurity realm. Everyone's, oh, zero trust this, zero trust that architecture. And I mean, it's maybe getting out of hand, but I, I understand it, I get it. And even I use it still as well. Um, do you do you think that the term zero trust <laughs> is being used too much? But no, the real question is building a zero trust architecture and making sure that you are minimizing access into the environment. Um, do you think that um, the way that environments are architected today, that a zero trust architecture is the right way to go? So to answer your first question, is there um, too much uh, zero trust? I think zero trust is like cheesecake. You can't get enough. 
So, yeah, it is important, and uh, it is important to build that into your architecture. Um, it Basically, it's a mindset more than anything else to begin with. You know, So it's to say build your environment resilient against the, your worst possible case scenario. Um, assume that the bad guy is already inside, is on your network, that one of your user accounts has been compromised. Don't. Don't trust. Don't go and assume that because the user account connecting to a system is one of your employees and even they're coming from one of your corporate uh, computers that you can therefore trust them and say, okay, this is fine. Let them do what they want to do. You've got to put in the controls that says if that user account has been compromised because of a phishing email or something similar, how do I ensure that I can now not trust too much, maybe let's trust but verify. Let's verify that this is really the person that they say that they are before we let them into our um, precious, precious data. Okay, and obviously there are, you know, different industries that companies are operating in. You have, you know, quite a few financial services companies. You have a lot of healthcare, manufacturing, retail, and the, the list goes on, right? Now, is it a difference, like if you're architecting a cloud solution, let's say maybe in Microsoft Azure for a financial services company versus a a healthcare company? There is a difference in the sense that um, a lot of industries have got particular compliance requirements and rules and regulations. um, And often it's a case of uh, they might have to show their compliance and their security levels to different regulators. Um, in order to be able to have their licenses, to be able to trade. But fundamentally, the principles are the same. You know, So whether you are a hospital or a bank, you need to ensure that uh, the people connecting to your systems are the people they say they are. You've got to ensure that the, your data is not being accessed by anybody other than who should be accessing it. Um, so the, the, the real basic fundamentals of your security and your compliance remain the same. You might just have more pressure on you in certain industries that you have to really jump through some extra hoops and show your compliance. Yeah, compliance and regulations and governance, it's its a, a big topic, right? And a, a lot of companies, as they're building out their strategies, maybe sometimes they're not considering compliance and the appropriate rules and regulations because they, they seem to be adding new ones like every so often. Uh, I know GDPR and CCPA were ones that were added not too long ago. Um, And some of the older ones like what Sarbanes-Oxley in the financial services side of the house. And then you have a whole slew of SEC, you know, 17-A. And and, I mean, there's a a long list of, of regulations to comply with. Now, you mentioned people as being the glue, right, and making sure that the people... Uh, number one, and not falling to like phishing schemes, et cetera. But there's a lot of tech layoffs that, that have been going on right now. And I, I want to hear from you, I guess, what types of skills someone needs in order to, let's say, develop and prevent data breaches, especially in the cloud? Look, obviously, uh, again, like zero trust and cheesecake, you can never have enough knowledge. So, um, you know, education, training, really important um, uh, important sometimes also to show that you've got that uh, knowledge perhaps through things like certification even if it's not formal certification participation in things like hackathons etc 
to show that uh, you have those skills. Particular skills that uh, are important in cybersecurity is um, certainly don't just look at infrastructure security, show that you've got knowledge of application security. That's where if you go and have a look at things like uh, the OWASP, your um, Open Web App uh, Security Program, They've got a lot of guidance. They've got training. That's really important to show that you've mastered that. And uh, there, there are various security programs and certifications out there. Not a bad idea also in the security space to show that you've uh, uh, operated on the other side of the fence, maybe taking a look at some um, certification and training around black hat type operations uh, that you can uh, show that uh, you're able to understand what the security threats are about so you can then also effectively protect against those. Yeah, so I, I remember also, what, maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago, certifications used to be like really a hot topic as well, where everyone wanted to be certified in, let's say, what was that? What was CCNA, Novell? Well, yeah, there was a Novell had the CCNA and then the CCIE, you know, and those programs um, on the... Um, Security side at the moment, there's a whole alphabet soup of, of specific security certifications out there. And yeah, it's a case of, uh, you know, almost the particular specialization you want to go in for. Are you, you know, in technological protection? Are you into auditing? Are you, you know, there's there's quite a few uh, really good uh, security certs um, that, that you could be following. In terms of skills, especially in, in the uh, Microsoft space, if you're around things like Azure, but even getting into things like AWS, particular skill that's really good to master at the moment is something called KQL, the Custo Query Language, because uh, KQL is used by a lot of the security tools to do things like threat hunting. So when you're going in and you're typing up uh, an advanced query to try and say, find me all the events where user X was logging on on workstation Y, you know, running application Z connecting to server A, um, that's all constructed using KQL. And at the moment, uh, a lot of the um, system or a lot of organizations are looking for systems analysts who are able to do things like threat hunting using KQL, and it's really hard to find them. Hmm. Interesting. KQL. I don't. I don't know oh, if I've ever. Custom query language. Okay. Custom query language. Custo. Okay. Yeah, it's actually yeah, it's derived from Jacques Cousteau. You know that mm -hmm. that French dude that, that made all the old uh, <laughs> expeditions uh, hunting things underwater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For some reason this was named after him. Nice, nice, pretty cool. Now I, I'm I'm curious as well since you you work for a for an MSP a managed service provider right so you you've seen lots of different clients and you've worked with multiple customers have you taken part in any ransomware recovery events you don't have to name names but just maybe some lessons learned from like a ransomware or type of attack or something unfortunately that's really become the flavor of the moment. Um, the last, uh, let's say, three years, we've seen that become a very, very big um, percentage of all of the security breaches where we do get involved. Fortunately, it's usually not our customers that we have to go and help. It's it's some guy that they know that, you know, they go in one morning and all the machines are gone. Things that are really important there, again, get the security basics done, you know, so uh, protect your accounts, protect your admin accounts. Because what the ransomers are often going after is they will try and compromise an admin account. And if they can then 
act as that admin account. They go in and they go destroy all sorts of stuff. The second most important thing is look after your backups. So um, again, in that ransom scenario, your absolute best way to respond is to be able to say, okay, we've lost a day or two of production. We're rolling back to our last backup and we're getting everything back from there. The ransomers know this and the thing that they most like to destroy is your backups. So again, if they've compromised an admin account and they can go in a day or three before, delete your backups or even leave your backups in place, but they go encrypt them with a key that you don't know, you can't restore. So really good idea that you design your backup infrastructure in such a way that uh, it's resilient against that type of attack that um, you really use the principles of zero trust inside of there, that even most of your admins can't go in and change your backup configuration. You almost want to have a break glass account with a 50-character password that's locked away in a sealed uh, envelope somewhere. That's the only account that can actually change anything in your backups. Make sure that you've got uh, immutable backups, can't be overwritten. Um, and uh, you know, even if you're saying, oh, I'm backing up to tape, Make sure that the data on those tapes are in such a format that you can get them back. Yeah, I, I love everything you just said, and I'm glad you mentioned immutability. Th there's a new word that I learned not too long ago called indelible. And indelible means that it can't be removed or deleted and you know changed or modified in any ways, just similar to immutable. Um, and then uh, you also have to make sure that you have some type of air gap, whether it's virtual or physical and an isolated recovery environment where if something does happen that you can recover from that environment, you know that data is pristine because there's really no way in, right? It's only pulling the data, you know, from a certain point and it's doing a backup of that data. And so it's more of making sure that you have all the safeguards in place and you're abiding by things like you know, your recovery time objectives, your recovery point objectives, maximum tolerable downtime, uh, et cetera. And just mentioning all those things, um, Andre, how important or have you seen or taken part in any disaster or recovery rehearsals, disaster recovery planning? I'm so glad you mentioned that because, again, you know, if, if you look at the fire department, the military, all of them spend their time in between fires and wars, not sitting around reading magazines. They exercise and they practice and they try it again and they see what they did well and they see what they did badly. So your disaster recovery drill, that's something that um, you need to try and find the shortest possible interval that you can repeat that exercise as realistically as possible. If you can do it once a month, it's great. If you can only do it once a quarter, good second prize. If you find that we haven't done it for a year or two, you are in more trouble than what you can imagine. Yeah, and I, I just read that there is a regular, I think it's a part of SOC 2, of being certified just from an audit perspective that you have to make sure you have business continuity and some type of recovery, re rehearsal or disaster recovery done at least once a year. And as you mentioned, that's, that may be a little too, too little, right? That's I your mean, that's your yeah. minimum viable option. Yeah, you know, that's, that's saying yeah. that I'm going to do this annually. That's probably not good enough. So you have to do it 
at least once a year at a level where you can show proof mm -hmm. to regulators mm -hmm. um, and, and, and stakeholders that, yes, I have done this and I've proven it. But that doesn't mean that you should only practice it once a year. Right. You should be exercising those muscles. You should be getting down to the gym and doing leg day with your backups. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And also just a, a question around what, what do you think AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning fits into this entire puzzle of making sure data is secure and from a data protection perspective? It's a good and a bad. There's an opportunity and there's a threat. The opportunity is a lot of your security tools are starting to build in um, AI and machine learning, and they're able to do things like learn the patterns of what people are doing. So they're able to see that user one usually logs on from computer one and accesses server one. And if suddenly user one is doing a logon from Hong Kong and connecting to server three, that anomaly is picked up and red flags are raised and then some of the hunting for a potential threat is, again, driven by a bot. So this is good because you're not dependent on a human to be doing clicking all of the buttons. And the bot is going to be working 24 by 7, doesn't have to go to the toilet, works on Christmas Day. Um, <laughs> the threat is the attackers have got access to the same technology, and they're using that to start develop more and more malware and uh, other threats that can get into your environment and then perhaps sit there and learn what you are doing, look for your countermeasures and work their way around it. And we're probably going to find a lot more intelligent malware starting to appear in our environments that are potentially going to defeat some of our traditional protection and tools and uh, anti-malware and XDR, etc., etc. So it's an arms race. You've got to make sure you have got the most intelligent software on your side. Okay, you just made me think of a joke. It, it may, it might be a dad joke. Go for it. <laughs> but if if artificial intelligence had to to relieve itself, had to go to the restroom, please tell us where would it go? The trash can. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna get that killed. That is a for dad, that dad joke. joke. <laughs> <laughs> Mikey geek dad joke. I should have said the recycle bin. Oh, even so. Which is the same thing, right? <laughs> Depending on your platform, it'll be the all trash right. can or the recycle bin. Okay, all right. Let, let's focus. Let's refocus here and, and, and begin to wrap up. And, you know, look, I, I love to have fun with these conversations, yet though we're, we're having a serious conversation about making sure data is protected. And I don't think there's enough people out there screaming from the rooftops, especially from like software as a service and users thinking that their data is protected if they're running Microsoft M365 or they're running Salesforce, right? Or GitHub or Atlassian Jira or Trello or Slack. I mean, the list goes on because there are thousands of SaaS applications out there. Because the shared responsibility model is clear that you're responsible for your data and we're responsible for protecting, you know, the infrastructure that it, it that it's running on. So I just wanted to bring that up. But the last question for you, Andre, is what what's on your nightstand? What are you reading? Give us some give us some good books to take away. I read a lot of history. Mm, okay. And a, a, 
The reason I do that, and of course a lot of history is military history, but not exclusively so, and I find I do learn lessons from that because a lot of the same reasons why you will find General X lost at Battle Y mm -hmm. is often the same reasons why a security environment gets defeated and destroyed. Mm. It's often um, overconfidence, making bad assumptions, mm -hmm. lack of intelligence, and not you know intelligence like in brain power, but understanding what the enemy is up to. That has led to many a general being defeated. I like that. And I've learned some lessons from that that I've applied in my workplace. Yeah, you, you're not the first person I've heard that's a history buff, read history books, and look for the silver lining in order to weave into their everyday life, especially like Sun Tzu, the art of war, and really understanding military strategy and, and uh, all of those different aspects which people do bring into the business world. So uh, I, I truly learned some things here. I appreciate the time you spent to share some insight and uh, some best practices with us here on Data Protection Gumbo. And if possible, how can the Gumbo listeners maybe connect with you or reach out to you? Come find me on our website, uh, netsurit, N-E-T-S-U-R-I-T.com. And uh, on uh, LinkedIn, I'm quite active there. So Andre Kirtland. All right, my friend. Well, thank you again for being a guest on Data Protection Gumbo. And also make sure out there that you look at the Backup and Recovery Professionals group that I own on LinkedIn. It, there's over 25,000 professionals in that group. We have great conversations as well. So please go check the group out. And also, uh, we just appreciate your support and make sure you tune back in here next week. So, Andre, thank you so much.